right, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome everybody um, to this Teleton Hall about housing and um, housing rights. Um, first little introduction, um, we are the Austin Justice Coalition, which is kind of a grassroots activist-led organization that aims to serve people who have been historically and systematically impacted by institutional, 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 institutional thank you, <laughs> racism and classism. Um, our mission is to improve the quality of life for people of color um, by policy and programmatic, um, pro programmatic changes, uh, changes in helping community members kind of realize the power that they hold and can create change for a better tomorrow. Um, so AJC um, works in a number of policy areas, but we kind of entered the housing and community development space about a year or so ago. Um, our housing and community development policy area is called Complete Communities Initiative. Um, and so we aim to create equitable, just policy changes to help communities of color um, have their voices heard and included in policymaking, uh, receive equal allocation of resources um, to create healthy, sustainable communities, um, and to build power starting at the block level. Um, but for this conversation, uh, we really want to talk about the impact COVID-19 is having on renting homeowners, particularly for communities of color. Uh, right now, I believe the reporting has stated that kind of the racial breakdown of confirmed cases um, is aligned with Austin demographics. However, when it comes to those who are impacted um, by food, housing, and employment insecurity uh, for vulnerable communities, uh, vulnerable communities are, um, are usually the hardest hit. Um, and so we want to have open conversation about how can we help communities weather this crisis and move forward. Um, this Teletown Hall um, will be into two parts. Uh, first, kind of discussing current policies and funding resources to help folks pay rent um, or their mortgage uh, to stay in their homes. And the second part of this um, conversation, we kind of want to talk about how do we roll out of COVID um, with our economy kind of being the men's, how can we create um, better housing policy going forth? And so I want to introduce our uh, panelists. First, we have Brett Pissar, who is council member of District 4. Um, I want to introduce uh, Shoshana Krieger, who is the um, project director for BASTA. Um, it's a tenant um, organizing organization. Um, third is Mandy DeMeo. Um, she's a community development administrator for the Neighborhood Housing and Community Development Department for the city of Austin. Uh, next, we have John Hindenberger, who is the director um, of Texas Housers and um, an author as well. Uh, next would be Harris, uh, Chris Harris, um, who's a community organizer and advocate um, for um, Just Liberty, but also um, Homes Not Handcuffs as well. And then lastly, we have Aves Azar, um, who works with Housing Works and also a steering committee member for Clean Air Communities, which is a um, also kind of a grassroots activist organization here in Austin. Um, so first we're gonna start off um, talking with Greg Kassar um, about, um, so my first question to you, council member, is kind of what's the current situation in regards to housing for residents and then what are you hearing from landlords and residents? Um, in a previous town hall, uh, council member Harper kind of talked about the calls that she was getting and so we kind of wanna know um, from your office what um, what are you hearing on the ground um, that are um, some of the issues that um, residents in Austin are having? Well, first, thanks so much for, for hosting this. I know this is a really hard time for so many people all over our community, across the country and across the world. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is how many of the broken systems, especially related to 
inequality and things like housing, um, how much those broken systems that were already so bad before in the midst of a really terrifying and awful pandemic only become so much worse. And so the severe housing insecurity that we already had in this community and across this country, the real income inequality, the number of people who are already living just paycheck to paycheck, that once you have to have a large number of people stop working in order to save lives, then that system that was already so brutal and already leaving so many people on the streets becomes so much worse. And so we're hearing from constituents just hundreds and hundreds of phone calls into my office, uh, messages and phone calls into my office alone. And this is happening to probably almost every council office of people who just don't know how they're going to pay their rent. It's definitely the number one concern that we hear in the community, uh, apart from just basic health, wanting to know what the rules are and how it is that people can stay safe and healthy. Probably competing with that is just how am I going to not lose my home? And so that's the, that's the number one concern that we're hearing. Um, and, and it's a concern that we had. It was one of the top concerns in the community before. And of course, it has just made so much worse in this moment. Um, and so we, we certainly um, need help from higher levels of government. Uh, and, and some help is coming from the federal government, but not nearly enough and not quickly enough. So uh, happy to talk about what it is that we're going to be doing to try to make sure people keep in their, stay in their homes and what it is that we have done. But in so many ways, what we are hearing is just an amplification of what already um, of what already existed. Because if we had a system where um, rent was reasonable, a system where people uh, had access to a decent wage, where people had a system and set of, of security for themselves, then we could handle um, a month or two months or three months of not everybody having to go out and work. Um, and so that's that's a lot of what we're facing. Uh, it's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and uh, and here at the local level, we're trying to step up and fill the gaps uh, and try to deal with a system that was so broken before and is in tatters now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and so kind of on to that point, um, we'll kind of go, we'll eventually get to the, the CARES Act, um, the current sentence plan that the federal government has passed last week. But um, late May, the council passed the ordinance uh, for a 6 day moratorium on rent and payment um, evictions. But so, but how is the city kind of planning to ensure that people remain um, after rent adjustments and eviction freezes kind of lift um, that are still unable to kind of work. So the, what part of what the city council did at our last council meeting, not the one just yesterday, but our last council meeting was pass the state of Texas's first sort of grace period um, uh, where we would give people 60 days extra time to pay their rent on top of uh, supporting the mayor and justice of the pieces blocks on eviction proceedings um, that that uh, lead into the month of May. So essentially, we ended the ability for people to have uh, their their uh, eviction proceedings start, and then pushed the ability, uh, pushed back the ability of landlords to keep, kick people out. What we you know those were huge wins, uh, and this grace period ordinance is the is the strongest by far in the state. But what we heard overwhelmingly from folks is I'm still not going to be able to pay my rent in 60 days. Um, this grace period ordinance, frankly, gives people closer to 90 days because uh, it stops the eviction process from even starting. And then the eviction process is at least a month long. But even in 90 days, people might not have the ability to pay rent. So part of what we're doing is we are going to be taking uh, significant amounts of city dollars and then eventually federal dollars and providing housing assistance to people so that they can cover the rent. We're also, um, I'm also a part of a group of elected officials calling on the federal government 
to suspend rent payments uh, and to get to a place where they would be sending all people who need it $2,000 a month. But we probably can't anticipate that that's likely from Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. And so we're trying to do what it is we can to fill in the gap. And in part, that's why yesterday we passed a $15 million relief fund, a significant portion of which will be for direct housing assistance and then also direct financial and cash assistance to people so that those folks who can't pay rent uh, we get them the, the help that they need. And if we need to extend the eviction ban even longer, uh, I anticipate we will. Awesome, thank you. Um, and so I kind of want to, there's two things in that, in that question talking about um, the question about 60 moratorium on rent and evictions, and then also um, the $15 million uh, raise a fund that was passed last week. We'll get back to um, that fund ordinance, but I kind of want to talk about quickly a question to Shoshana about, um, so within the CARES Act that was referenced by um, Councilmember Kassar, um, the federal government puts 128 day moratorium on rent evictions, on rent and evictions for properties that are backed by federally backed mortgages. How can residents kind of determine um, if their rental properly is funded by federal programs? Well, thanks. And uh, first, uh, it's uh, awesome to be here, and it's wonderful to be on a panel with um, so much uh, knowledge, and that gives uh, me a lot of hope um, in this moment where uh, it can be hard uh, to keep hoping. Um, so the CARES Act, uh, which uh, provided 100, as you said, 120-day moratorium on the filings of evictions for non-payment of rent, um, it also provides a uh, 120-day period where um, property owners can't um, uh, issue uh, late fees. Um, and then an additional 30 days uh, after that, uh, so basically 150 days before um, a, uh, a tenant would actually have to move out of their apartment. Only certain properties are covered under it. Um, so the main bucket of properties which are easily to, easy to identify are a federally subsidized properties. So that's tax credit, public housing, project-based section eight, uh, we have a list of them. We know what those properties are. But your question is at um, a much larger number of properties, uh, which housing advocates across the country have really been uh, trying uh, in vain to identify. Um, that in the CARES Act, it said that any federally uh, backed mortgage um, is a tenants and properties with federally backed mortgages um, are also protected. And estimates range, it depends on who you talk to, that 40 to 60% of our multifamily housing stock are federally backed um, and um, around the same amount of uh, single family um, housing uh, rentals are um, also uh, backed. So your question is, is how do you find out? Um, and advocates right now are trying to get that list. Um, the information from um, the largest pool of uh, federally backed mortgages are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, Freddie, uh, Freddie is saying that uh, that information is private to landlords. Uh, so even if you are a tenant calling Freddie and saying, hey, I want to know, know is my uh, property, uh, uh, are you backing my property? They are not going to give you the information. Um, so the recommendation right now is that tenants should go into uh, their property manager's office and say, hey, are you, uh, are you participating in a federal mortgage program? Um, and we all know that's not necessarily going to yield uh, the information uh, which we want. Um, BASA right now is working uh, with national folks, I mean, with Texas Housers uh, to get uh, 
as much as we can a complete list of properties in Texas. And probably next week, uh, we'll be putting out information with more concrete steps about how folks uh, can, can find out. I'm sorry that that's not a very uh, a simple answer to the question, and that I think highlights the murkiness of the world we're in, um, and that there's a lot which is unclear. Yeah, so if questions um, kind of arise, it's also best to kind of contact your office to kind of ask some of those questions to see because within um, the state of Texas and city and the local ordinance is only for a certain amount of time, but definitely others have a much bigger grace period um, on the written evictions, correct? Uh, yeah, some will have more time. Also, as Councilmember Kassar uh, stated, if, if the uh, local uh, disaster declaration is extended, then some of the city protections may also be extended. Um, this is also a reason why time is so crucial here, right? Because there's a lot which is unknown. So time at least gives us as a community the time to be uh, planning, to be figuring out the situation we're in, to be scrambling for resources, and to be doing the things which we need to do so that when evictions start, uh, we are able to, as a community, come together um, and fight every single one of them. Fantastic. And I, and I think, that, yeah, to, to that point, we're trying to get the notice out to tenants that if eviction proceedings start out against you or you're trying to be evicted, then you'd have that landlord could potentially be violating not only the city's grace period ordinance, but the mayoral order against uh, evictions and potentially the federal law if they're federally backed. So whether you're federally backed or not shouldn't stop you from fighting your eviction because the question is, are they breaking one law, two laws or three laws? Um, and, and we're gonna try to keep on layering laws onto that to, to just do everything we can to keep people in their homes. And on that point, the law doesn't mean that landlords are following the law. So one of the things which we are seeing right now is we're hearing um, from a lot of tenants that they are receiving notices to vacate, even though they should not, because that violates both the mayoral order and this opportunity to cure, right? So it is important that we, um, we work to make sure that the law, laws are actually enforced because the law means nothing without enforcement. And I think to that point, what folks on the call here can help with is if you hear of folks getting a notice to vacate, if you hear of people facing eviction, um, to make sure to get that to our offices, to make sure to, to make noise about that, to keep talking to, you know, contacting the city to make sure that there's a good uh, process for people to, to understand um, uh, what their rights are and to make sure that people can actually call in because the law is only useful insofar as people use it. And on that point, uh, point, point. Um, uh, Basta, last night uh, we just uh, released a form where tenants can report if they have gotten notices to vacate to be able to help with disseminating this information to the city. Uh, so you can see that on all of our social media channels and we're doing that in partnership with Austin Tenants Council. Awesome. I just wanted to uh, jump on real quick um, with regards to what you mentioned, uh, Greg, about a sort of calling out and, and keeping notice if, if uh, landlords do uh, continue to make these threats, is there an ideal place to report um, or a, a number that can be reached or an email? Where should, we, where should people report um, these, these bad landlords? 
Right now, we're working hard to get the city up to speed to enforcing the ordinance well. For now, at, at, at a minimum, submitting things through 311 uh, and even getting things into my office, you know, we, we're easy to find online and connecting with BASTA are all good routes for people and usually covering at least two of those as we set up a, a, a better enforcement mechanism. I, I saw that a couple of more questions sort of came into the chat on this as we were talking and I want to respect everyone's time, but just very quickly, you know, I, we are in conversations with people in Houston and Dallas and Tarrant counties to try to get something similar passed. And I think it'd be great if theirs were as strong or even stronger than ours. Ours was the first one in the state. And so we were really trying to craft something that we hoped could hold up. Um, and so that's part of what we're trying to navigate is making sure that it, that as we push these protections, we're really trying to protect them from getting taken down in court in any way. And so that's in part the reasons that it's crafted the way it is. Some folks asked about the position landlords are in right now. And the answer is that this ordinance actually protects everybody. Um, it protects every single person because every person lives in a home somewhere. And our number one goal is to make sure no one winds up on the street that's currently in a home. Uh, and so if you're a landlord or a restaurant worker, um, whether you're retired, whoever you are, our goal is to make sure you don't wind up on the street. And however, we do know that this is having a big impact on people's incomes all over the country. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic is. And in order to get landlords uh, back professionally working uh, or getting more income, we have to figure out a way to get money back in the tenants' pockets. And that's part of what the relief program is about. Yeah. And, yeah, and on that note, um, can you talk a bit about um, the RISE fund, the ordinance that was passed yesterday? Um, how are these funds going to be used for housing and additional household needs for renters and homeowners alike? Um, and how will people get access to these funds, um, particularly if they're not going to receive any federal funding through the CARES Act? So we know um, that people's number, you know, our local governments and everyday people's number one priority is to stay safe and to stay healthy and alive during this pandemic. And that requires a lot of people staying home. But for people who already were working paycheck to paycheck, we know this is especially uh, challenging. And a lot of those folks are trying to apply for unemployment and sometimes calling dozens of times a day and not getting access to unemployment. There are people who are never going to be able to get access to unemployment because of the way the unemployment laws are written. And so part of what the council has been discussing is can we move forward our own emergency dollars? And that's what we did yesterday. Um, Mayor Pro Tem Delia Garza sponsored a resolution assigning how those dollars could be spent. I sponsored an ordinance moving $15 million out of essentially our rainy day fund into a thing called the RISE Fund, the Re uh, Relief in State of Emergency Fund. Those funds, our goal is to get them into the community well before the end of the month. It might take a couple of weeks after the vote to basically work with all of these existing nonprofits um, and their community partners that already work with the city and start expanding the services that they can provide and maybe even bring in some new partners as well. And the hope would be to, for about half of those $15 million to be spent on expand, expanding the services that are now so strained. You guys may have seen in the Statesman the, um, photos from this weekend of 3,000 people lining up in their cars at Nelson Field there at Northeast High School. There are so many more people just looking for basic food, make, being able to, they can get their medication, basic services. Um, and a lot of those, those basic services, we're looking to expand our housing payments. So the city works with lots of organizations right now to essentially cover people's rent and other household expenses so they don't lose their homes. So we hope millions of dollars can go to that. And then the other half of the package is in direct financial assistance, which could mean uh, visa cards that are already prepaid so that people can go and 
cover whatever need they have or direct payments into bank accounts like what the federal government is doing. We're hoping about half of that goes to help those folks in most need, especially those folks that are getting less help in other places. Um, and we don't ask um, about how often you've been unemployed re recently. We don't ask whether you're a person experiencing homelessness. We don't ask about your immigration status or any of that when we deliver these basic services. So we're hoping to deliver these services without discrimination to all different kinds of people in need and get $15 million of help in quick so that as federal dollars start coming in, hopefully in the next month, we can then start pouring in more of that money into the community. Perfect. Thank you so so we'll have updates in the coming days about how you can get resources to those people who need it the most as soon as those city dollars start getting spent. Awesome. Um, and so just kind of a question to Shoshana. Um, for what are the um, longer term consequences of not paying rent? So like say people are kind of having issues um, figuring out which organizations provide rental assistance um, or um, are allocating or finding funds, right? So what are some of the long term uh, consequences of not paying rent, such as delinquency reports or bad credit reports? Um, so some of this is uh, not totally yet known. Um, not paying uh, rent, which is owed, uh, a landlord can always or normally report you uh, to a credit bureau. Um, if eviction proceedings uh, begin, um, then you might end up or you probably will end up on a list of the new eviction screening services. So oftentimes landlords, uh, when they're doing a background check of a tenant, will uh, check with these services to see if an eviction has ever been filed against them. Um, and oftentimes, even if tenants have won in the eviction proceedings or have, um, or have, uh, have settled with the landlord, they still will be on the radar of these screening services and that could be a barrier uh, to uh, being approved and getting housing in the future. Um, so the g giving more time uh, to tenants uh, to be able to move out or to be able to come up with the money uh, will hopefully uh, result in fewer evictions uh, being filed to begin with, which means that barrier will not uh, be there. Uh, but there could still be uh, reporting, credit reporting um, uh, consequences. Um, and then, I mean, the, the each family obviously is going to have to make a, a decision for themselves about how much money do they have, and they have lots of other costs, and they have to buy food, and they have to um, be able uh, to just provide basic necessities for their family. Um, and so for each family, it's going to be their own uh, decision as to whether or not they really can afford rent, even if they actually have the dollars. Um, and that's the reality of the situation we're in and why all of those uh, pools of money for direct assistance um, are so crucial and making sure that that gets uh, to everyone, uh, whether or not they're currently connected with our kind of social service uh, network. Awesome. Thank you so much. And so I kind of wanted to kind of flip back to um, to Councilmember Kassar um, kind of on that note. Um, so we're trying with the RISE Fund, um, a number of sources that are coming from philanthropic organizations uh, for renter um, in order so that people um, don't have certain circumstances that Shoshana has talked about in terms of uh, being delinquent on your rent and ability to pay. And so um, 
be, so like in an emergency situation, Texas kind of gives a power for rent control. Um, we've learned that a couple of landlords have announced rent increases um, during this time. And so how can we, is ever rent control an option or best, how can we um, create greater consequences or accountability for landlords um, who are um, wanting to do rent increases during this time? Right, no one should be doing rent increases during this time. Um, and it would make sense for us to have a rent control ordinance. The state law does uh, allow cities to enact rent control in a disaster if the governor of the state signs off. And so one concern that we have with everything we're trying to do is we're trying to balance pushing the envelope hard and doing everything that we should in this moment, while at the same time we want to make sure that our strategies are something that we feel like we have at least a 30% chance or a 50% chance of working because we really want community members to know that we are spending our time um, on things that they can trust that we can try to get done. And so while I'm a believer that we should have citywide and actually national rent control laws, um, I think we're in, we're in continued conversation with tenants' rights groups and with organizations around whether that is actually the best use of our time if we end up spending weeks debating and fighting out a rent control ordinance if Greg Abbott is not going to sign it, then it wouldn't actually happen. And we might get people, give people a sense that they might get something that we may never get. And so I, I've, I haven't been shy about us passing things that the governor might overturn. Um, you know, we passed things like fair chance hiring and paid sick time and other things and actually managed to save those ordinances oftentimes from getting overturned. But passing an ordinance that requires the governor to sign off on it, um, given that his primary concern right now has been opening up churches, uh, putting construction workers at risk and banning abortion in the state. It just seems it is, while it is something that is possible uh, for us to pass, it would require the governor's, the governor's signature. So, you know, honestly, we're trying to figure out where to best spend the movement's time and advocacy energy right now when there's so many needs. Um, can I jump in here, Kendra, real quick? I have uh, just a question on that regard, Greg. Um, is there, are there any other ways which we can uh, sort of shame and hold landlords accountable for this kind of predatory practice, um, increasing rents in the middle of a kind of pandemic? That's a terrible thing to do. We see people, we've seen some people increasing prices at stores, people increasing rents. Um, I think, you know, the movement has, has all the tools from decades of work of how to do targeted corporate campaigns. I think that could be um, really effective. And then frankly, also, you know, we have our housing department, and other folks here on the phone, we have uh, dollars also to be able to, to buy land and buy property and take more things off of the, uh, off of the market and into public hands where we actually do have control of rents. And so that's something else where, you know, should be thinking about, um, you know, there's all sorts of horrible economic consequences for families in a pandemic uh, and in a recession that could turn into a depression. Um, but at the same time, it's, this is a moment for us to fix and take over some of the broken systems that allow people to do things like have big rent spikes in the middle of a pandemic. So it, my hope is that we, that we take this opportunity to, to get a lot more um, cooperative housing and community owned and run housing where that kind of thing wouldn't happen in the future. I also saw a quick question about uh, the RISE Fund about you know, some existing social service providers don't have the trust of the whole community. And that's part of why we wrote really strong language into our um, into the Rise Fund to say we want it specifically those dollars specifically to get targeted to communities that are historically marginalized, those communities that get the least help, 
to work specifically with community partners that do um, work well with every different kind of community. And some of the existing social service providers could even subgrant money to organizations that are really grassroots. Uh, and we could even have emergency new contracts. So there's, we're going to do everything. The goal was to get the money out fast and to get the money out fast. The fastest way to get money out is to work within some of the existing infrastructure and expand it. Um, but then our goal is also to get it to the people who need it. Perfect. And so I kind of want to pivot to Mandy DeMeo. Um, within the CARES Act, I'm still kind of on the line of funding for um, housing needs, um, rent and mortgages, um, and um, money that people will get um, through the um, the $1,200 or more, depending on your family um, income and size. Um, part of the CARES Act also includes money through CDBG, the Community Development Block Grant, and mm -hmm. the Emergency Solutions Grant, ESG. Um, can you kind of speak to how these funds are typically used and how will these be funds will be used to help um, housing and potential needs for residents? Sure. Um, first, thanks for pulling together this panel. It's really exciting. I'm already learning a ton of things. Um, so I am pleased to be uh, participating in this. Uh, second, as was previously mentioned by Councilmember Kassar and by Shoshana uh, Krieger, there are a whole lot of unknowns. I mean, the CARES Act was just passed. This is really an uncertain time. We're excited about the opportunities. Uh, within the CARES Act, but we're still looking for some guidance from the federal government about uh, how those funds can in fact be deployed. Um, the city of Austin is estimating through the CARES Act that they'll be getting between 150 and 160 million dollars um, and Travis County will probably be receiving a similar amount of funding and that's actually for federal reimbursement of COVID related um, expenses. Uh, we anticipate again, I was just listening to the deputy budget director for the city of Austin and, and, and we're looking for some guidance from the federal government uh, regarding what actually would qualify as a COVID related expense and, and how we can tap into those funds which are forthcoming. But the CARES Act also includes um, funding for, as you mentioned, CDBG, which is Community Development Block Grant, ESG, which is Emergency Solutions Grant, and HOPWA, Housing Opportunity for People with AIDS. Those are three of our four block grants that we get every single year in the city of Austin gets. We get about $14 million every single year. CDBG is our biggest block grant. And what the CARES Act is doing is augmenting those funds, so giving us a special amount on top of our um, on top of our already approved uh, allocation. So for CDBG, which our department administers, um, the CARES funding is going to be about $4.6 million. We are supposed to receive those funds within 30 days, um, which is really acting fast uh, when you think about how the federal government uh, works, but we should be receiving those funds within 30 days. And we're still waiting for uh, more clarification and guidance on how those funds can be used. But I will tell you that historically, how we have used our funds, um, CDBG we use for architectural barrier removal, so making housing uh, accessible for people with disabilities, whether you're a homeowner or a renter. We use it for minor home repair programs. Um, we use it for a variety of public services like childcare contracts, as well as um, uh, tenant landlord uh, tenant rights. 
Um, we have a contract for tenant rights, home repair loan program. Um, so it's a variety of different, um, a variety of different things that we do locally, typically with our CDBG funds. With these additional $4.6 million, we're looking to what the identified community needs are. And uh, as Councilmember Kassar mentioned, we're hearing loud and clear from the community. Uh, rent assistance is one of the largest community needs. We've got a request for utility assistance, food assistance, childcare. Um, there are a lot of really, really pressing needs that families uh, are struggling with right now and probably will be struggling with for the foreseeable future. Um, so we have received some preliminary guidance um, from HUD that uh, emergency rental assistance will be allowed under the, the CDBG. So that $4.6 million could be used um, at this point, we believe for emergency rental assistance for up to three months of assistance. Um, so based on what we have heard from both 211 calls and from the community, we think that's going to be a high priority. Again, child care, high priority, um, and also tenants' rights, a high priority. Uh, ESG is administered by Austin Public Health, um, and we anticipate that we will be getting an additional $2.3 million for ESG. And that uh, provides funding for shelter operations like the ARCH, um, so for people experiencing homelessness also provides funding for rapid rehousing services. So housing is a priority under ESG and we do anticipate um, that we will be augmenting. As Council Member Kassar said, we know the funding needs to get out there. It needs to get out there quickly. We have an existing system that maybe isn't perfect and can be built on, but that the, the best thing we can do is kind of layer on these new resources onto an existing system and try to reach as many people in need as possible. Um, again, we're hoping to see these funds within 30 days. Um, we are uh, looking forward to further guidance and we will certainly keep council and the public um, informed on what that guidance is. Um, we do have a webpage, austintexas.gov, uh, housing-resources, uh, where we keep all of our information up to date. Um, so I encourage folks to check that out. Um, it's all COVID-related uh, resources for both uh, renters and for homeowners. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh -huh. um, in addition to kind of the federal government and the level in the local government, um, the um, work that the city's been doing, um, the state agency, TDHCA, uh, Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, has also been doing um, some reallocation of their funds for tenant-based rental assistance. Um, moving those um, into different buckets that are from their home, um, their fund. And so uh, my question is, um, how um, can you discuss kind of how the actions are taken by the state and how landlords and or residents might be able to access some of these resources for their housing situation? Yeah, so um, I have not gotten confirmation from TDHCA about their tenant-based rental assistance specifically. What I will say is because I'm on all their listservs, they've been very actively engaging with their portfolio of properties. Um, and in the city of Austin, just so folks know, TDHCA, which is our state housing finance agency, finances, uh, I think their portfolio includes more than 20,000 units in the city of Austin. So it's a pretty significant portfolio. They have been communicating um, proactively with all of the landlords, reminding them in very, I think pretty simple language about this is what the CARES Act says about eviction, about late charges. This is how we're interpreting it. And 
we expect our TDHCA uh, partners, our development partners, um, to uh, abide by the law, the, the federal law. Um, so again, 120-day moratorium on tenant eviction filings and charging late fees. Um, the thing I have seen also is that developments, this was most recently, could tap into their special reserve accounts. Um, typically, there's a, um, a lot of hoops you have to jump through to tap into those accounts, and TDHCA has said, um, provided you just let TDHCA know that landlords can tap into those accounts if they have them um, to provide direct assistance to uh, tenants who cannot make their rent um, because they uh, because of COVID-19 related uh, events, loss of job, things like that. Um, but keep in mind that all of these rules only apply to their portfolio. So you had mentioned, Kendra, about this is tax credit properties. Um, it's also 811 properties, home properties. There are a variety of different um, property types. And as Shoshana mentioned, sometimes it's hard for tenants. They don't necessarily know how their property was financed. Um, they don't necessarily know, will this apply to me or will this not apply to me? But again, about 20,000, give or take, uh, units uh, come under this TDHCA uh, purview. And I just encourage residents to communicate directly with their landlords about any COVID-related um, uh, impacts to their income and, and how that impacts them paying uh, rent and utilities on time. Perfect. Um, and so kind of looking in other buckets of money as well, um, this is another question for yourself and for um, Councilmember Fassar. Um, part of um, kind of the CARES Act and maybe even from the state is kind of this tenant-based uh, one. So is there any um, discussion with housing authorities, with the city or with the county um, to see how they, if they're doing any more additional like housing vouchers for folks, opening up that process that allows for people to kind of tap into those um, kind of rental assistance funds? So we work closely, the city of Austin works closely with Hatsi, the Housing Authority of Travis County, and HACA, the Housing Authority of the city of Austin. Even, they're separate entities, but obviously we have, our missions are totally aligned um, and we work closely with them. I was in conversations with the Housing of HACA um, this morning about the CARES Act and how it uh, potentially uh, could impact them. And the reality is the CARES Act doesn't provide any additional vouchers. I know we would love, HACA administers about 5,000 vouchers, um, really important source for low-income residents um, and, and really would help, frankly, help folks weather the storm in a lot of ways because the, uh, a housing choice voucher um, takes into account adjustments in, in, in residents' income. So you're only paying 30% of your adjusted gross income. And when your income goes up, you may pay a little more. And when your income goes down, it may you will pay a little bit less. Um, but so it would be fantastic if we had more vouchers locally, but CARES Act does not provide any additional funding for vouchers. What it is doing is providing additional funding for project for landlords through project-based rental assistance. So if they have um, Section 8 project-based rental assistance, it's providing additional funding for them under the assumption that a lot of their residents, their incomes have gone down and they're not gonna necessarily be able to come up with the same amount for rent. So it is providing um, that funding. Um, we also, I, I should mention, we have a variety of contracts, including a tenant-based rental assistance contract with HACA. Um, it is specifically for people experiencing homelessness. So it's in conjunction with ECHO, our continuum of care. 
Um, we also have a contract with them um, for folks uh, coming out of the Salvation Army shelter. And this is again for tenant-based rental assistance. Uh, in light of uh, what Council Member Kassar talked about, the RISE Fund, um, also in light of some work we were doing anyway on our housing trust fund and how to ensure, um, how to mitigate displacement for folks um, and, and focus on also folks experiencing homelessness. We were looking at augmenting some of those existing contracts anyway, and we're looking at our housing trust fund really as a flexible source of funding. Um, we recently deployed an additional $250,000 from housing trust fund to Austin Public Health through their uh, neighborhood centers um, to provide rental assistance for folks who are um, uh, unable to make the rent, so emergency rental assistance. And then we're also getting ready to sign, uh, it'll be in the next couple of weeks, a $300,000 contract for emergency rental assistance. Um, and that will be deployed through Goodwill. We know it's not enough money, uh, but what we're doing is trying to kind of lay the groundwork and then hopefully layer additional funds as those funds uh, become available. Uh, and then I should also say, while this is a more long-term solution, before COVID, uh, before we even knew the term COVID-19, uh, we were working on a tenant stabilization solicitation. So it is an RFP that is out on the streets right now. It's $750,000. And um, it is, uh, uh, we've extended the deadline, but we're really looking at how we can deploy those funds more quickly because it will include emergency rental assistance as well as um, eviction prevention. So the time is right for it. We wanna make sure that we can get that out as quickly as possible. Perfect. And so uh, a question that came from the Q&A is that um, there's several buckets of money that are kind of um, moving around um, the this you know the housing sphere um where can people who are waiting for relief money from the federal government or waiting for the rise fund to be distributed to organizations um how can they get assistance now yeah so um the best way is to go to our website austintexas.gov housing resources so i realize that's kind of a mouthful and i we can send you a link kendra i don't know if you can get it out to all of the participants um, but it does provide uh, links to all of these different entities that are providing um, housing assistance now. Um, and then, as I mentioned, future funding will really be deployed through existing uh, contracts that we have so we can expedite uh, getting the, the money out the door to people who need it most. We're constantly balancing that with getting uh, public input. Um, and so we're working on an online um, tool that will enable folks to tell us this is where we need the money. This is um, because, as I mentioned, the CDBG funding can we believe it's going to be able to go to a variety of a pretty wide range of community needs. And we want to make sure we're deploying those funds uh, in accordance with the community needs. Um, we're also working with our Community Development Commission. Um, but we're, we're kind of constantly balancing that with making sure that we can meet the community needs as quickly and efficiently as possible. And as far as resources go, and I have to log off here in a, in a minute, um, if you go to either my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram page, we have pinned at the top a resource guide uh, in English and Spanish that we know thousands of people are using to just get access to a lot of the existing resources 
knowing that those are really getting tapped thin. And that's part of why we're trying to put all this new money in there. But there are um, some resources and places people can get help. Awesome. And we've cross-referenced, just so you know, we've looked at Councilmember Kassar's. There are a lot of different resource lists out there. So we've tried to pull um, and cross-reference as much as possible. Um, and also, kind of last question. Uh, right now, I believe there's a vacant uh, hotels that are going to be used for people who tested positive for COVID um, or helping those um, to kind of um, homeless persons to be in spaces um, out of um, kind of really crowded shelters. Yeah. Um, but there was a, um, a call, an, a, an option that came up on a call that I had this week was that, let's say, the affordable housing provider or co-op housing has available units. Or if I am an Airbnb owner, I have my, um, my rental property is vacant. So for those folks, maybe for serving um, medical professionals or essential personnel, um, how can we connect folks who need housing with some available units? Is that something, a process that's been, um, we can work with like between um, neighborhood housing, community development department and like APH? Yeah. Sure. I loved the Airbnb idea. I mean, it's a perfect example of kind of the market working in potentially a good way, um, you know, bringing together folks who have a, a space in their homes um, and providing it to frontline workers. We've also been in communication with a, another a national startup called Silver Nest um, that is um, uh, connecting. It's kind of a matchmaking service for folks who have um, started as kind of empty nesters you know, they have extra rooms in their home and they either want to do an exchange, like maybe for caregiving um, or just uh, have a, a roommate and, and make some income. We've had a lot of different uh, communications with these different entities. And I think without a doubt, the private sector has a huge role to play and we look forward to working with them um, on that because uh, I think in particularly in times like this where there's a lot of unknowns and we've got a uh, uh, serious health pandemic. Um, we need to uh, work with the private sector. And I think the hotels are a good example. We currently have three, as you mentioned, three uh, different hotels where we have leases. This is obviously a time where hotels have very low occupancy. I think uh, the, the numbers I just saw were they're at about 5% occupancy right now. Obviously tourism is, is not a thing right now. Um, and so this is in some ways a win-win for both the hotels as well as for our community where we have people who, who need to um, be taken care of. Um, they need an opportunity to isolate and self-quarantine and they can't be afforded that opportunity if they're experiencing homelessness. So I think that's a great example. We look forward to working on more of those um, where we can come together with um, private entities to figure out win-wins. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, there's quite a few. I think there's a number of Q&A and we'll kind of come back to some of those questions. I did want to kind of move forward and we'll kind of at the end have an open question and answer session for some of the ones, the questions that weren't answered, um, or we can also answer them uh, offline. Um, but we kind of want to shift to, so we're talking, like, we spent the first um, bit of this town hall talking about current resources that are available, um, that are coming through local, through the state, and through federal um, entities. Um, in order to help as many people as possible during this time. Um, but we're kind of thinking about um, housing justice, um, looking how we come out of COVID in the future, how best can we create um, 
a more equitable just system um, through the allocation of our, of our resources and um, just policy ideas um, that would help um, communities of color, low income, working, low income or working families um, better suit themselves. Um, and so I want to kind of switch um, to JP, who's going to kind of moderate that section of our town hall. Thank you, Kendra. And uh, by the way, um, uh, if anyone answers a question and someone else has something they want to contribute, feel free to um, raise your hand or join in um, if you have something important to add. My first question, though, is, is for Chris. Um, Chris, uh, you've been kind of work, you know, with all the leadership around the Homes Not Handcuffs program. We wanted to see uh, what the impressions you get right now, um, kind of like what the report uh, on the ground is uh, from homeless people at this moment, um, what that continuum of care is like at the moment, um, how things have been um, in terms of reducing the risk for um, homeless people contracting um, COVID and how can we improve processes that help homeless people during this time? Well, thank you so much, uh, JP and Kendra for having me on this. Um, I wanna start by by saying that, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very honored to be here and helpful to, to um, you know, impart what I know about the experiences of people that, that I've dealt with and have relationships with that are experiencing homelessness. But I'm, you know, I cannot claim to speak on behalf of anybody experiencing homelessness in this moment. You know, and I don't, and I don't claim to. Um, but, but obviously, you know, it's it's really really tough situation right now for people. Um, and and you know, I think it's it's been mentioned, but it's it's worth re-mentioning that you know this this pandemic has uh, hasn't created. Um, new inequities. It's, it's really just highlighted the inequities that we already have. And so folks that were already most vulnerable, most marginalized, and, and most on the, on the outskirts of our society are, are predictably and heartbreakingly bearing the brunt uh, of, of this pandemic. And, and that um, very much includes people experiencing homelessness. Um, and so um, what, what you have right now, I think it is a laudable effort. And some of those efforts were spoken to about, um, you know, procuring hotel rooms and other forms of housing, as well as rental assistance um, to, to keep people newly from falling into homelessness. Um, but, but you know, we, we already had an issue with homelessness in our community, and it's, it's, it's something that uh, it, the situation is, is definitely worse now. So um, when, we, when we think about, um, you know, the shelters, um, we're, we're, we've already heard some of positive cases in, uh, in uh, at least one of the shelters. Um, and, and, and obviously the ability to quarantine, to isolate in, 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 those, in those spaces is, is very, very limited. Um, Since that, you know, there's you know, more people now that um, really are in an unsheltered situation than, than there was previously. Um, and obviously for folks that are unsheltered, um, it's very difficult to, to abide by the CDC guidelines. You're unable really to, to isolate. Um, and so um, right now, there's really been, and I think some laudable efforts to get folks who are experiencing homelessness, who have, uh, who are symptomatic or who have tested positive for uh, COVID-19 uh, to get into shelters. Um, but, but we know <laughs> that really any effort that, that is limited to folks who are symptomatic in some way is, is not good enough because this, this virus spreads amongst people who are asymptomatic. So what we really need is every single person uh, who's experiencing homelessness to have access to shelter. And obviously the best, the best solution is one that 
allows for folks to have access to, to long-term shelter, right? To actually get people into housing that they can maintain and stay in through and beyond this crisis. Uh, but in, in lieu of that, uh, we, we have to be more aggressive with, with our hotels um, and getting folks moved into them. Um, and, and, and a 5% occupancy rate <laughs> means there are, there are many more hotel rooms uh, available currently than there are people experiencing homelessness. Um, and so we, we really have to be uh, uh, getting those rooms, procuring those rooms, and, and getting folks moved in. Um, obviously, there's many other challenges. You know, you see your service providers, uh, your churches, and, and, and private groups as well, um, you know, really, um, you know, in many cases, struggling with volunteers, struggling with, with resources, um, and many of the things that were available to people experiencing homelessness before, now either not available, or uh, in some cases now folks are competing with people uh, who were previously working, previously housed, uh, for the same resources. You see the food bank with, with thousands of people lined up. Um, again, resources that may have been more exclusively uh, the, uh, utilized by people experiencing homelessness before, now um, you know, are, are needed by a lot more and different types of people in the community. Um, and then you, know, you have a situation where, um, where really there's an information gap as well. So in addition to housing, in addition to food, um, uh, you, you have you know, the libraries uh, somewhat accessible for, for, uh, for hand washing and, and, and things like that, but uh, otherwise cut off. Uh, and these were a major source for, uh, for connectivity, uh, for social engagement, for, uh, and for information just about what's going on in the world for many people experiencing homelessness and that they can go and use the computers, uh, check their email, look at the news, uh, do the things that we all do. Um, and so um, you have a lot of folks now who literally are, are don't know what's going on. Uh, and of course, with the situation, uh, services, service providers, everything changing so much, so rapidly, it, it's, it's very difficult for folks to, to know what's going on. And I think this only, um, this only makes it more, more immediate that we get folks into uh, an organized housing situation, right? Um, once there, um, it's much more easy to, to kind of communicate in mass with folks. Um, and, um, and obviously, then people have access not only to, to, to follow the CDC guidelines of isolation and self-quarantine, but also just wash hands regularly. Um, the city has made some hand washing stations available at different parts of the community, which is in dire need. And um, there's been some great work on some mobile showers uh, that are going around as well. Uh, but again, until until we have places where people can be, where they can really isolate and self-quarantine, um, it's going to be very difficult to, to, for folks to get their needs met. And lastly, I'll just say on this point, you know, panhandling <laughs> was also something that uh, many folks rely, rely upon uh, in order to get their daily needs met. And without any pedestrian traffic in the streets, and many folks even less, uh, le less likely to roll their window down uh, at, a, at an intersection, um, the capability for folks to, to procure any resources through that means is basically been cut off as well. Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> um, John, I have a question for you. You um, had made some comments in an Observer article about um, how the state failed uh, in the way it allocated disaster funding post-Hurricane Harvey um, to the homeowners and those most uh, who needed the help the most. Um, how can we do better this time? And what do we need to do to improve how resources uh, are really distributed more equitably during this time? <clears throat> well, we can't do much worse. 
Um, the, um, the state's uh, record and the city of Houston's record on Hurricane Harvey recovery is pretty bad. Um, there's, uh, you know, last time I checked, after having hundreds of of billions of dollars available, the city of Houston has rehabbed, last time I checked, 18 homes since Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017. Now, everybody is rightly concerned, and we've been talking a lot today about immediate relief that's available to people, but there's gonna be another crisis that's gonna come, and it's going to hit us really hard, and that is, when we get to the point of the Supreme Court lifts the eviction stay and the governor starts to roll back the, the initiatives that our city's taken to provide protection for people, then we're going to have people facing eviction with no resources to be able to address that. And the model that we're following to make resources available for that is not going to work. So we're going to have major disruptions, major economic disruptions, lots of evictions, unless we do something different. The, the philosophy for making these funds available, you heard 150 million to the city, 150 million to Travis County. There is a theory that HUD applies and that the governor, our governor particularly likes, which is the theory that local officials have the best knowledge about the needs for disaster survivors. And in some cities, that's true. In a lot of this state, I can tell you that's not true because elected officials will not, in many cities, pay any attention to marginalized people, to LGBTQ people, to people of color, to people with disabilities. Those are folks who are actively suffering disinvestment on the part of, their, of government benefits already in a whole lot of the state, cities like Houston and other places. And to invest the sole authority for determining what needs are and to invest the sole responsibility for dividing the money up to local government officials is, is a formula for disaster. Now, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what Greg's done. I'm proud of what our city council's done up to this stage, but we are an outlier on that and we aren't perfect. And I'll tell you that when you put $150 million of community development block grant funds or ESG funds or anything like that, especially community development block grant funds, in front of a city official or a county judge or a county commissioner, it is, they are so sorely tempted to use those funds for activities that are government-related activities and not to distribute that money to individual benefits, to the people who need that money to be able to pay the back rent or they're gonna get thrown out of their apartment. So one litmus test of how progressive this city is going to be is will this city allocate that $150 million of CDBG funds directly to individuals to pay their rent or will it filter through a lot of social service agencies and will it go to reimburse hospitals and will it go to reimburse EMS and will it, you know, all of those are valid needs. I don't dispute that. But in the end, our city has more resources and our city will survive even if it does not get that debt reimbursed. But our individuals, our families won't. And so, you know, I just predict that we're going to have you know, and that money's going to hit here in three to five days is what I'm hearing. 
the, the critical role for a group like the Austin Justice Coalition is to be an advocate in this process for the people. You know, not for the social service agencies will advocate for themselves. The hospitals will advocate for themselves. The nursing homes, they'll advocate for themselves. Business people will be advocated for by the Chamber of Commerce. And Lord knows the Austin Apartment Association, which is a force of evil in this city, in my opinion, uh, at this moment, in terms of its actions toward its tenants, they'll advocate for the apartment owners. But who's going to advocate for the people? And that's, in essence, you know, the real challenge for our community right now is, will there be a grassroots voice which is going to stand up and say, the people first, the agencies, the institutions second. So I could, I could talk a lot more about that and I really would like to, but I think that, I, I think in essence, that's the critical issue that we're facing right now. Uh, there is, keep in mind, if you're a local elected official trying to make the budget balance, trying to get reelected, you, and, and somebody hands you $150 million in cash, you are going to look to where you can put that money to work politically. You're also gonna do it for the people to the extent you can, but the pressure is on for what you can do politically. So you, we've, we've got to be aware of those things. Um, at the, at this is a great moment. I think I wanna bring Avez into this, um, kind of bringing into this question about how that resource, how resources will be distributed and, and what's the most equitable way to do it. Um, and when we look at the map of places in Austin that have been hardest hit by COVID-19, um, it just struck me that that map looks a lot like the gentrifying typologies map. It's almost the same map um, of East Austin and, and the vulnerable neighborhood areas. Um, so the question is, how, what do we have to do to make sure that those neighborhoods, that those areas that are hardest hit, um, what can we do to make sure that we, we're channeling resources into those parts of the city? Um, again, I think like everybody else, JP and Kendra and Austin Justice Coalition, thank you for this great conversation. Um, and, it, and I think you're right. Like we look at those numbers and I think Kendra, you mentioned this, we got to receive the race and ethnicity numbers yesterday looking at the cases. And currently it maps against our population. So it's very similar, the number of cases per race and ethnicity are similar to the population. What we do know is though, that by race and ethnicity, when we break up, healthcare access is extremely different. So even though cases might be occurring you know, at the same rates, your access to healthcare, your access to housing, food, shelter, everything else is not the same. And so the people who are going to be impacted are really going to be largely, you know, people of color, working families, homeless folks, folks who are coming out of incarceration. And I think we're going to have to focus really on this from a very specific way. And I think undocumented immigrants, and that's a conversation that I know our council has had, will be an important part of the conversation. And just to sort of frame this conversation, I was looking at it yesterday. And so um, according to the census data that we have, foreign-born na nationals who are not U.S. citizens, they get some access to Social Security income, and that's only 5.3% of them. And yet we see that nearly 20% of those folks actually access SNAP. And the only difference really is that they cannot get access to Social Security. So we see that there's a big need within that population yet is not able to access these services. And we will see this with the federal funds that are coming down, with other funds. And if we're not focused on the people who are going to be left behind and are hard to reach, it's gonna be even more difficult for them. 
An example of this would be, I'm thinking through, you know, a lot of different things and what those vulnerable folks are. You know, there's been a big conversation around the country and in my understanding is that people are having in Austin as well, that we're seeing larger cases of domestic violence. So we now have folks who are in homes, stuck with people who might be aggressors, and they're having to sort of live through that situation because they might not have anything better to access. And what does that mean for being in that situation? And can we really say that they're now in a healthy environment? And what does it mean to be in a healthy environment? So really in terms of looking at who is going to be impacted, it's a long list of folks who we know in our communities are already some of the most marginalized through structures and systems that exist today. And I think, you know, any idea of recovery, any conversation around how do we get out of this, it will really have to have a strong focus on race, ethnicity, and immigration status, and essentially citizenship status, because of the ability of people to actually gain access to those services and facilities. And then I think as we move out of it, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about some of these things related to housing and affordable housing, to your point, you know, when we look at the areas that are gentrifying today, we see that they're seeing a larger degree of cases, particularly Southeast Austin um, and Northeast Austin are seeing larger cases. And I think that's alarming. That's alarming. And I'll be honest, at the same time, I won't say that it's surprising. We're seeing this play out around the country with people in Chicago, folks in New York, folks around the country, where we're seeing that people of color actually have higher incidences of um, you know, getting the virus to begin with, and then also in terms of the kind of outcomes that we see for those folks. And so really, unless we really put on a race and ethnicity and an equity lens, we're going to leave a lot of people behind and we're going to have to focus on this in a way where we really get to get to the folks who might be left out of this entire conversation altogether. So, um, you know, in this question about how, how we distribute those resources and, you know, John brought up the point that we, we need to get the money directly to the people as much as possible to help them pay their rent, as opposed to just kind of funneling it through programs and stuff. But assuming that we do get the money directly into people's hands, there is another possible challenge, which is a lot of people face um, source of income discrimination. Um, you know, that's already a problem for the city's voucher program where a lot of uh, landlords and homeowners uh, just won't just refuse to rent um, uh, based on source of income. So how will source of income discrimination um, impact what we are, uh, you know, any kind of attempts from the city at helping people? Maybe a landlord says, okay, well, I know that you've received you know, this, um, this amount of money from the city, which will allow you to pay your rent for the next month or two, but I still know that you're hurting and whatnot. And so I, re I refuse to take this as a legitimate source of income. Um, what, what can we do about that? We've got to get the legislature to, uh, we've got to get the legislature, we've got to get people elected to the legislature who are going to vote to overturn the source of income ban. Texas was the first state in the United States to to outlaw the power of cities to protect their tenants from housing, their residents from housing discrimination based on source of income. And unfortunately, two or three other states have followed us in regards to that. But more states are enacting pro the prohibitions that our legislatures prevented us from doing. But, you know, a minute ago when I talked about the role of the Austin Department Association, they were the ones who got that passed. They are big contributors to the members of the legislature, to the governor, to our elected officials, and they're the ones who got that egregious law passed. We need a 
we need to be proactive and not always also just following behind that because our landlord-tenant laws are abysmal in this state. We rank somewhere near the bottom third among the states in terms of tenant protections. And a lot of what we're encountering now about landlords doing egregious things in, in, in the wake of this disaster, well, those things are magnified by the fact that the, the deck is totally stacked toward landlords in terms of rights. There needs to be a tenant's agenda for tenant rights agenda that moves simultaneously. And the only way for that to happen, as we, the only way for anything progressive to happen, is to organize. So we've got to, you know, the Austin Justice Coalition, the Texas Tenants Union, the uh, Texas Organizing Project, the folks in this state who stand for uh, BLM, folks in the state who stand for progressive racial justice, economic justice, need to organize and, and take action. We, uh, you know, I think those are, those are two things we ought to, we ought to push for uh, simultaneously. But, you know, the bottom line, as far as Section 8 goes, when, you, when we do the maps all the time, we get data periodically from the Housing Authority. You get a Section 8 voucher, and it's called a Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher. It's, Congress was told that this act, that if you had a voucher, you could freely choose where you wanted to live. If you needed to live near a job, if you needed to live near a hospital, if you needed to live near a good school, if you needed to live near whatever you need, your family, wherever you needed to live, the voucher would hold out that promise that you would have housing choice. But when you do a map of where voucher holders in Austin live, they are exclusively confined to the lowest income, highest concentrated poverty areas and the areas with the highest levels of racial concentration in the city. There is no choice in Austin in the housing choice voucher program. And it's just made worse by the legislature's egregious action. And Chris, um, you know, I want to bring you back in because thinking about these sort of uh, different groups of people who are left out or do not receive help, um, one large group of people uh, are people who have been through the criminal justice system or formerly incarcerated folks. Um, there's been a call right now to uh, reduce to empty prisons, to reduce our, our prison population in light of COVID-19. Um, but what about um, barriers um, imposed upon people who have been through the criminal justice system? Sure, yeah, thank you for asking that question. I mean, it's, they're, they're substantial and it's, um, and it's a real barrier uh, for, for many folks to successful reentry into our society and our economy that, that allows them to stay out of the criminal legal system uh, in, in the future. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we really, with Homes Not Handcuffs, you know, pushed for decriminalizing homelessness here locally was that um, we saw that even just a simple arrest, um, much less a conviction um, for even the low level charges associated with homelessness uh, were being used as an excuse by, uh, by landlords and apartments to deny people uh, access to housing. And so literally by virtue of being homeless uh, and being criminalized for that homelessness, you were kept in homelessness uh, because your criminal history uh, was, was used against you. And so um, in addition, obviously, to, to housing, um, we see uh, these, these sorts of barriers being uh, constructed in the labor market, uh, in, in other forms of, of government assistance and benefits, um, and, and really in many of the ways that people need in order to, to, to get back on their feet. 
even in the 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 federal relief package, the small business um, funds that were passed, um, it's subsequently come out that people that have criminal histories uh, who are small business owners will be denied uh, those funds. And so it's the, the level <laughs> and degree to which uh, policymakers go out of their way to target folks uh, who uh, ultimately um, however egregious and unjust their involvement in the criminal legal system was, are through with it and out of the system and now, and now attempting to rejoin society um, as literally almost everyone who goes to the criminal legal system will do, um, are constantly kind of kept in a permanent underclass um, is, is, is a real black mark on our society. And, um, and it further the injustices that many people feel even just by their very involvement in the system itself. As organizers and community activists, um, what do you think are some of the things that we should be focusing on calling for um, to make life easier and to increase housing opportunities for formerly incarcerated people? Sure. Well, I mean, I, you know, here in Austin, there was a, an amazing movement led by uh, some formerly incarcerated folks, Reentry Roundtable, Second Chance Dems, and some others. Uh, um, that led to a fair chance hiring ordinance that meant that um, employers uh, could not discriminate on the basis of a criminal history um, and before they had uh, gone through the interview process uh, with, with applicants. Um, and I've heard a similar cause from those communities uh, for, for something akin to a fair chance housing ordinance um, that would uh, similarly remove uh, barriers uh, and and uh, and really the opportunity for uh, for landlords and, and uh, apartment complexes to 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 utilize criminal history in the process, um, or at least limit their ability to use those in the process uh, to to ensure that people that are coming out of the system uh, have a place to live. I mean, there's it's really just a fundamental question if if you're released from jail or prison. And you don't have a place that you can legally uh, actually uh, rent. <laughs> you don't have a place that you can stay. Um, how are you supposed to avoid either homelessness or going back into the system? Um, there's really, there's really no way around it. You, you, we have to open up opportunities for people to to be able to to own and rent property, um, despite uh, what what they may have done in the past. And, and I think, you know, obviously opportunities for income are still, uh, even with the fair chance hiring ordinance here in Austin, um, very much limited, not just in Austin, but obviously around the state. Um, you know, uh, we, we really need to, and, you know, just end discrimination against folks uh, coming out of the system uh, to the maximum extent possible. Um, folks that are, you know, I, I don't really like to use the term pay their debt because I, I don't necessarily see it is a debt that people owe uh, to, to society, but people that have been incarcerated and fulfilled their sentence, um, they, they deserve a place, a full place back in our society. And so we have to eliminate discrimination in those groups. Um, and I wanna open it up now. Um, actually, I have a question I wanna direct uh, to Avez and to Shoshana, but also open it up to anyone else who wants to uh, um, participate in answering, um, which is, uh, we have, uh, we, I think we're all in agreement that uh, resources and particularly that money needs to make it directly into people's hands so that they can weather this uh, storm, so they can be able to pay their rent and bills. 
Um, but it, thinking about uh, dis displacement mitigation now in the coming months and over the next year in light of COVID-19, what are some uh, key policies that we should be focusing on um, that can help us keep people in their homes? Um, so what are some of the things that we, that we can be doing Aves, that, that can help us uh, really sort of stabilize people in their current situation? So I think this has been talked about already and we really have to understand, right? Like we're, if we're talking about, whether we're talking about 60 days or 120 days, once that period ends, you're suddenly required to, you know, come up with rent for two months or four months. And I'll be honest, I can speak for myself as a tenant who lives in the city. I do not have the ability to come up with two months of rent in this moment. My loved ones, my family cannot provide me the kind of money for two months of rent. I just, there's no way. And I think eviction moratoriums are important and critical. And I think I'm glad that our city and the federal government has worked on it. But we really have to understand that there will be um, some rent assistance that will be required afterwards, which is robust and really helps people who are going to be in need. And as we talk about this 1,200 or more that might come to your household, our average rent right now in the city of Austin is around $1,200. And you're getting one $1,200 check, that's one month of rent and you're done. That does not include food or anything else that you might need related to health and other needs. So really we're going to need some robust rent assistance and I think that will be important. Federally speaking, I think the suspension of rent, like what Councilmember Kassar was saying, would be something that would be important. And I think something that the government should really be considering, along with understanding that there would be a conversation around um, essentially making sure that as we're suspending rent, we're also expunging records. We're suddenly going to see a lot of records, what Shoshana was saying. We're going to see records develop around eviction, around non-payment of rent, which are going to make it really hard for people to go out and get housing later. And I think that kind of issue should not be creating right now. We really should expunge records during this extreme situation of disaster and understand what that means. And Sean, I want, don't want to take away from you and I want to make sure that we get to you as well. But I think you know, there's a great conversation right now on mortgage forgiveness, around other sort of forgiveness. And I think looking at rent forgiveness has to be an important part of that conversation. And looking at rent control as well, whether in a state of disaster or not, we need rent control in this state. And I just want to quickly say one thing on this state, you know, the John was talking about this. Let's just be clear, we're one of the few states that allows people to discriminate. We give people a legal right to discriminate based on source of income. And that really has to be seen within that light, what that means for our state moving forward. And I think that's just a part of the conversation that we need to be having. And Shoshana, I definitely want to hear more from you and I might add a few things. Yeah, well, you covered most of it, Annette. Um, but I think one thing to just uh, also stress and that this kind of, uh, you know, um, is uh, kind of in many ways recapping a lot of what we've already heard is the need to be able to organize. And right now we have to figure out how to organize safely in this moment and in this time. So a lot of the things which we're talking about, which are so crucial, uh, the policy solutions, organizing is necessary to be able uh, to get there. Um, and how do we organize in this moment when we can't be knocking on doors, where knocking on doors and flyering can actually kill people? Um, and I think a lot of that lays bare um, the digital divide of our country. And so I think when we're talking about housing justice right now, we need to be talking about how we organize. And if we talk about how we organize, we have to talk about 
how we're getting technology into the hands of folks who are most directly impacted. Um, the members who we work with, um, we have, we've been, and the organizers on our team, you know, we've been struggling right now to be figuring out how we are able to digitally organize with folks who do not have Wi-Fi in their houses, who do not have devices, who do not know how to, who've never used a computer in their lives. Um, so I think getting those resources um, into the hands of folks who are impacted, training in this environment, because we're going to be, we're going to be organizing in a different way um, for months into the future. Even if things start to return to normal, the ways, this meeting, the fact that we're having this webinar right now, right? Who can actually attend and has Zoom and has the ability to stream video uh, to be able to be even connecting with this information? So we're as organizers, as advocates having to rethink that, but I think that's also how are we getting uh, some of the uh, resources which are gonna be flowing into our, our community into addressing um, addressing the digital divide. And, you know, we've gotten two questions uh, that are sort of similar. Um, one is from a person who's with a nonprofit, um, concerned that tenants receiving funding won't use that funding to pay the rent. Um, another question was about sort of why should the city um, not sort of distribute funds to landlords and then create some kind of rent forgiveness program. And then the other side, a different question that we got um, kind of a, was, uh, what if, how can we do a program where we're not giving money to landlords, right? I and mean, does, do rent relief programs just ultimately mean sort of just channeling public funds directly into the hands of landlords? So we're getting questions from both sides of it. Um, uh, one of the interesting things that was brought up was that uh, sort of like, is the, it, does it create a burden on renters or, or an onus on them if they have to sort of apply um, for these different kind of benefits programs from the city? And are there lots of hoops they have to jump through in order to apply and win those funds? Um, so how, co how can that be made simpler? So I think we have two kinds of questions. One is kind of the landlord's side of it. And the other is saying, well, should, should the city just be sort of putting money into landlord's pockets during this time? Um, I'll leave that open <laughs> if anyone wants to take those. Well, I can take the first stab. Um, so I, as a tenant advocate, um, I have seen landlords uh, get money when landlords would, uh, didn't owe the money. And we see every single day landlords alleging debts where the debts don't exist. Or we have a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous laws around late fees um, in this state. Uh, which means, and in this time, there are limits on late fees for a number of properties. Um, so I think we do have to be careful about making sure that we're not just accepting the landlord's word for, oh, you, the tenant owes X amount, because landlords are going to know that there's a ton of money coming in. And so they may tack on $100, $200 more, and that's $100 or $200 more, which aren't going to other families in need. So I think the robust enforcement of the laws and the protections which exist are crucial um, and not just accepting the landlord's, uh, the landlord's word. Um, on the question of the hoops to jump through, this is gonna be um, a, huge, uh, a huge implementation channel and is really, really real about how do we quickly uh, get the money uh, to folks who need it and also trust that people are gonna make the decisions which they need to make for their family so that their families can be fed and their families can be housed and they can, they can survive in this moment. 
John, did you have something you wanted to add? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. I get a little ex excited when somebody <laughs> says, just give the money to the landlords. Uh, and when that comes from a nonprofit, I'm doubly sort of alarmed. Um, <clears throat> that's, uh, I have absolute confidence that the Trump administration will find a way to get money to landlords. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I am more in doubt whether our city council will figure out a way to get money to the people. And we have to do what was within our power to take the action to help the people who we think are the least likely to benefit in the long run from the way our federal government is going to run these programs. So we should use our authority and our discretion to get the money to the people who are most in immediate need of either they're homeless or they, they are going to lose their home or they're, you know, they're in, a, in an emergency situation. We should get, we should get that money to, to those folks. And uh, the landlords will come out okay. Donald Trump will make sure that happens. So I, I will say this is Mandy. And um, I think the city is looking at this from the, the multiple different perspectives. And Councilmember Kassar mentioned that half of the funding, the $15 million and the RISE fund, I think that was the intention was to very explicitly say half of that needs to go directly to people in the form of prepaid credit cards um, or other mechanisms that the city hasn't historically done. So I think the city is trying to look at this a little bit more creatively and, and balance kind of the need for the public trust and the fiduciary duty and, and getting the funds you know, out the door expeditiously, but in a way that is in conformance with the community need, um, trying to do things a little bit more creatively. And so I, I, I think while we haven't totally determined a lot of the tenant-based rental assistance programs, and the funding that we're looking at, we haven't totally determined yet. Um, you know, does that go directly to the tenant or like a historical, historically tenant-based rental assistance programs have been the tenant qualifies based on their income and then the funding goes directly to the landlord. So all of that yet to be, yet to be determined. Mandy, I just say that if you're gonna give money to the, to the landlords because you feel that's, that's a balance, and you're worried about giving money to tenants because you think they're going to misspend it, then if you give a dime to landlords, every landlord who gets a dollar from the city should agree that they will maintain their units in decent condition for 20 years, that they will accept Section 8 vouchers, that they will make themselves subject to audit, that they will engage in affirmative marketing, that they will not displace poor people and especially poor people of color from their, their community and the like. There is responsibility on both sides of this Absolutely. equation. And to imply that, you know, I think it is, I think it is classist and racist for people, not you, but for people to ask, you know, what, how are we gonna make sure people don't misspend the money? Well, you know, that is not, that is not, should not be our primary concern right now. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of having a place where you can be sheltered and away from harm and this is not a situation of where you know we're, we're playing into that old ronald reagan thing about welfare cadillacs and stuff like that and that was all bullshit when they and he came up with that in the first place excuse me absolutely and, and john i will say that this all came up pre-covid 19 when we had the displacement mitigator accelerator i can't remember the the name of it and one of the the nonprofits that that won uh, was the Family Independence Initiative. And it was kind of this 
groundbreaking for a lot of ways for the folks who were on, I was one of the people on the panel and there were a lot of city people on the panel um, with the idea being that we have low income people and we trust them to make the right decision for their families. We are giving them money, access to resources and really access to social capital, which was an interesting concept. Um, and then we trust them to make those decisions. And it, it really spurred, and again, this was pre-COVID-19, but it spurred a lot of interesting conversations because that flips on the head the way we traditionally the way we traditionally do things in government. So I think this is kind of bringing it all to a head. What is, what's the most expeditious? What's the most, you know, the proper amount of oversight? What it's bringing to a head all of those issues that I think the conversation really started with that displacement mitigator accelerator. Yeah, I'm going to have to run here in a, in a second. So I did want to just say one more thing too, if that's okay on this topic, which is, you know, I think, What's crucial to realize is that uh, property, uh, if you're a landlord, is ultimately an investment. And is it the government's responsibility to ensure people's investment? I don't believe that it is, especially not when the alternative is ensuring that people have a place to live, that people can get by day to day. Um, I, I think that at the end of the day, government's responsibility is to the individual people and to ensure that they have the ability to take care of themselves and, and, and thrive to the, to the maximum extent possible in our society, not to ensure that investors uh, reap the, the benefits that, that they expected from whatever investment they made. And that includes property and that includes real estate. So I, I really would take a totally different approach to it. And, and to the extent, to the notion of, you know, uh, service provision. I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly that we have to trust people to, to fulfill the needs that they have. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that many nonprofits uh, are, you know, have a, a lot of unnecessary overhead in the provision of services that probably could be, people could provide for themselves if they were simply given the funds directly. Um, and I, I will name no names, but <laughs> at least not today. But I really want to thank y'all for having me on and, and for having this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. I, can I just add one thing to that? I think I also don't want us to walk away from this conversation thinking that giving money in the hands of people means that landlords don't get anything. One of the entire conversation really is that once I get a check, I will use that to pay my landlord. So the landlord will get the, you know, the payment that they need and deserve and you know whatever you think about it. So they will get their payment. A payment in the hand of a tenant does not necessarily mean that the landlord gets nothing out of it. They will get their piece of that essentially funding. And I just don't want to get, go away from this conversation thinking that it's somehow these slush funds that somebody will suddenly have. Thank you, Vez. Um, and I want to throw out one last uh, open question to everybody. Um, feel free to answer it. We're nearing our, our time here. Are we, are we near time, Kendra? Or just about? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, we're getting close. Um, so we kind of, we'll try to wrap up um, shortly, but definitely be open the open question. So um, yeah, the open question is coming out of this crisis. I mean, this crisis has clearly upended many aspects of our system, of the way we um, kind of rely on, on certain parts of the market to sort of create and provide housing, especially here in Austin, where we, we don't often have as many tools available to us because of the state. But coming out of this crisis, what would be a positive outcome if we could transform something about our housing system? So I want to throw this out to everybody. I know it's kind of a, a broad question, but if we could, if we, you know, moving forward in a 
sort of post-COVID world, um, what's a major thing that we could change to improve our housing system looking forward? I'll give it to you guys. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> I'll just, I think, start by saying, and you know, as we've been getting to this, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the, there's this concept of the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. And folks who are really talking about how coming out of Katrina, then also Hurricane Harvey and the 2008 recession, we saw that what happened was we really led to a, um, like essentially we saw an accumulation of capital among a certain amount of people. This is gonna sound a little too wonky and a little too academic, but I just think it's important to talk about the fact that I think in the restructuring that we do, one thing to be cautious of is that we do not do the same kind of things that we did coming out of the 2008 recession, where large landlords, financial firms, asset and equity firms, they've walked away with the benefit. And what we see today is homeownership rates are lower for people of color. We see people are more living in more housing precarious situations and worse housing conditions. That should not be the thing. But I'm, as I'm thinking about Naomi Klein's you know, disaster, she also leaves this little nugget of positivity there in saying that on the flip side, the folks who are organizing on the ground can also use the shock doctrine. This is our time, honestly, to build those robust tenant protections in the tenants' rights agenda that John and Shoshana have been talking about. Building that robust agenda is important. And it's kind of heartening for me to be in a conversation with a lot of folks talking about housing in this time. And it, there's been a lot of focus on tenants. I think we're all really concerned how vulnerable tenants are. And I think we're recognizing that in this moment. So I think my biggest hope would be moving out of this, we can really recognize that we need robust tenants' rights agenda, a focus on tenants generally in terms of housing and assistance, and you know, in terms of organizing and protections. Moving out of this, we really have to see the vulnerability of tenants and to also see how we can address that moving forward. Thank you. The, um, I, I, to I wholeheartedly agree with that. And um, I think that what the, the best thing for housing that can come out of this is to, to channel the fear, the anger, um, the un this moment, uh, and use it to build uh, momentum for changing systemically the way that our homes and neighborhoods are treated in this state and in this country. And it really, you know, we cannot, I don't know, part of it's when you hit 65 years old, you sort of just go, is it ever gonna get fixed? And I hit 65, so I'm in, the, I'm in that mode right now. But I really do believe, I think there are moments in this country, like after the Civil War and after the Great Depression, and, and, uh, and when, when society is disrupted sufficiently and where people are questioning a lot of things that we took for granted and that the systems that we relied on no longer look as, as useful in some cases or as unable to be changed. And I think that this is going to be one of those moments. And so the key thing to do is to organize around housing justice, tenant rights, neighborhood rights. My friends in the Texas Organizing Project in Houston, who I've worked with for many years, have come up with a, something they call the four rights. And I think this is the basis for fundamental reform of the system. The four rights are number one, the right to choose, the right to choose where you live, to have a healthy community, to have a healthy, healthy home you can afford, the right to choose. Number two is the right to stay, not to be displaced or gentrified out of your neighborhood. 
The third is the right to equal treatment that your neighborhood will receive from government the type of respect and treatment that will provide it protection and full city services and the like. And fourth, and very importantly, is the right to have a say. The right to know that if you engage civically, that your government's going to listen to you and it isn't going to just, programs aren't just going to be handled by a professional bureaucracy, but it's actually, there's a method for the people to be heard in the process. So I would suggest a movement built around the four rights is, um, is the best thing that can come out of this moment. Thank you. Andy, Shoshana. <laughs> Um, I echo what uh, both of us and John uh, uh, John said. Um, I think that this is a moment in time which is laying bare all of the problems uh, which we have um, in terms of the way we house um, house our communities um, from uh, kind of more wonky stuff of what what does it mean to build affordable housing and that new affordable housing we're developing is tax credit housing which isn't based, your rent isn't based on your income. And so that means all of those tenants and tax credit properties right now, they're not living in affordable housing. Whereas the older programs we have, Section 8, your income goes down, if your income goes down, your rent goes down. And so that's a social safety net. And so all of those tenants in that type of housing in this moment have such greater protections. And we as a society have been moving away from programs like that. Mm -hmm. And how do we say, no, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be creating our affordable housing programs based upon what the market wants. We should be doing that based upon what the community needs um, and about housing as a human right and a step towards that. And also of uh, what uh, Aves was saying about how do we have a uh, agenda about tenant protections, that this is a moment where people are seeing uh, what folks who've been working on the ground and uh, folks who experience evictions day in and day out already know, which is evictions in the state of Texas in a matter of 21 days, you can go from being housed to losing your house. And it's just, it's super, super easy. And we're gonna see that in mass. And so how do we change that? Because that's been happening this entire time and now we have a magnifying glass on it. And so let's use, uh, let's use the anger, let's use um, uh, the panic or let's channel the panic that we are all feeling into um, something uh, productive um, and good with the goal and the end of having control and community control over housing and the decommodification of housing. So I, I don't know what I can, I mean, I agree that all fantastic things that um, all the other panelists have said. Um, for me, this time has really amplified uh, the precariousness of most I think it's fair to say most renters certainly um, in the city and across the country. And I think um, from a policy perspective, that is just really the result of dismantling a lot of federal programs and federal support over the previous several decades. Um, so from my perspective, I'm really interested uh, now that I am in government uh, in looking at how we can use our resources, both our local resources that we have, as well as federal resources that are coming our way um, most strategically. Um, how we can, you know, get out of the way when we need to get out of the way, um, but then also deploy them in a way that really does the, the most good for people who are in the most need. Thank you. 
Thank you all for participating. Um, Kendra, do you have any closing remarks? <laughs> um, I just also wanted to echo uh, actually the things that everybody said. Um, particularly taking note on uh, this is common about disaster capitalism and um, Shoshana is about building movements and tenants. Um, having the ability to advocate um, for certain policies that have come out there, um, a group of advocates and academics released this green, green stimulus plan that they're trying to work into the next um, stimulus plan at the federal level, right? And this plan um, talks about housing, but it also talks about, it's in the vein of like the Green New Deal and climate change and how can we, in, at, in terms of housing, in terms of labor, in terms of food access, can really transform our um, society that benefits and works for everyone, right? And so, um, and so within that kind of disaster cap capitalism uh, quote that's uh, Naomi Klein talks about is one from um, economist Milton Friedman about like, you know, the ideas that are lying around or the ones that didn't seem likely um, possible are now possible. So how can we start advocating for some of these um, ideas that didn't seem completely possible in a time as we're rolling out of this um, this crisis and we see the major cracks that are a part of our system, how can we start advocating for those at the local and the state and the federal level in order to get us um, into that position where we really do have a much better system? And so I just wanted to make a note of that. Uh. I just wanted to say, I just wanted to thank everyone for participating. In this call. I hope this is just the first of many of these kinds of conversations that we want to have with the community. Um, Trishana made a great point that there's this problem of access. How many people at home really still have the ability to join a Zoom call and participate in this? And uh, as an organizer who personally likes knocking on doors and talking to people, um, being confined to my home right now is a real challenge. So um, I think we're all going to be finding ways to organize and to bring the community together although we have to abide by social distancing. So um, thank you all for participating. I hope we can carry this conversation forward. If anyone um, hears about uh, landlords raising rent during this time or other predatory practices, please reach out to us. You can reach out to the Austin Justice Coalition. Um, we will, or reach out to BASTA. We will get your complaints um, you know, filed and we will try to do the best we can to sort of keep track of these kind of predatory landlords and let's continue to fight to make housing access more equitable in Austin. Thank you yeah. all for your time. Wait, and I also wanted to thank, sorry, uh, Councilmember Kassar, we kind of forgot to yeah. thank him on his way out, but also um, he also put, pointed out to um, touch base with his office um, via his Facebook or his Twitter or, um, or his direct contact, contacting his um, office directly um, with um, questions and concerns about how best um, can we all um, help people get through these times and how to make um, people not on the outside of, other side of this crisis in a better position. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you, everybody, for participating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. <laughs> and thank you Will, for all the attendees as well. Thank you so much for the great questions. And we'll try to get some of those um, ones that we may have not answered, answered um, um, through our AJC Facebook, our AJC website under Complete Communities. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye. Stay safe.